0: Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, if you haven't yet subscribed to Room for Two, this is your personal invitation to do so. Listening to Room for Two will help you see how to take the concepts I talk about in podcast episodes like this in my online courses and apply them to your own life and relationships. Listening to other couples work with me will help you see that you are not alone in your struggles and will show you what you can do to create change. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about subscribing.
1: Hey. I'm Isaac Burton. I'm a 19-year-old college student and a big fan of Dr. Finlayson Fife. I've seen the impact that Dr. Finlayson's Fife work has had on my parents, and I wanted to focus more specifically on some questions that young adults might have, um, questions about dating, career choices, and how to work through challenges with parents. It was a great experience to talk with Dr. Finlayson Fife about these topics, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. So I had a girlfriend for a while my senior year, and we broke up before things weren't Because things just weren't working out. And since then, I've listened to your men's course. And I think we could have worked out our issues. But it's not like we were married. And I know in this time of my life, I'm supposed to be dating around and figuring out what I like. So when do you think a couple that's not married should break up over trying to make it work and solving issues in a relationship? Mm.
0: It's a good question. and, And I don't know that there's like a really easy answer because there's just a lot of variables that play into it. Mm -hmm. um but a lot of what dating is is a period of time of getting to know who you are and getting to know who others are and there's just a lot of um changing and growing happening in that period and so you know a couple that at 15 decides they don't want to be a couple anymore could very well had they met at 25 been a good couple after both had matured, but it's still valuable at age 15. Right. Because you still learn things about yourself and about romance and about, you know, even just handling attraction and desire. So there's, um, but to the question of like, when do you know to give up? Well, I've, I'd probably make a lot of money if I truly had the answer for that. Because a lot of people are trying to figure that out, even if they are married. Is there a certain point in which we cut our losses? Yeah. But I think it has a lot to do with whether or not you still have energy for it
1: mm-hmm. and you
0: still want to try. Like you said, Isaac, like when you learn things about yourself, then you think, oh, wait maybe that could have worked if I had been more mature. And you may be right, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it has a lot to do with, does the relationship still grip me? Does it compel me? Do I still want to try? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's really when it starts to lose its allure, when you feel like it doesn't any longer push you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I used to, when I was dating my husband, I used to feel like I shouldn't be, so alert I should let it go because it wasn't coming together quickly for me but I couldn't like every time I, I broke up with him a few times, I would I would hold him in my heart I would think about him I would want it to work and so that just can that just stayed true throughout I learned a lot in that process I think we both did mm-hmm. and then we ultimately got married but yeah that that would be my answer is Uh, that's amazing
1: (laughs) that's perfect thank you Uh so much okay so next question Mm -hmm. um i have some friends my age who have liked each other since the end of eighth grade and they have been dating for a super long time they always hear things about those types of relationships that tend that they tend not to work out or that they'll regret not exploring more options in their future Mm -hmm. do you have any advice for them or for anyone else in their shoes
0: okay Good. Again, it's a, it's a tricky question Yeah. because sometimes people who meet in eighth grade and stay together, they're doing it for reasons that will continue to sustain them. And what I mean by that is they're not somebody who's always looking for something better. And what I mean by better is not that there is actually better, but some people are always wondering, they have a fear of missing out that mm-hmm. kind of drives them into unhappiness. And sometimes people that meet someone in high school and stay together, they just don't have very much of that. They, they, they're happy with the good in their life. And if that continues to be true into adulthood, they'll continue to be happy with that person. I know some people that married very early and have been very happy. Right. So, um, but if the reason you're staying together is because you're afraid of the risk of getting to know other people, you're afraid of the risk of being single, of not always having somebody there in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. Well, that might be less healthy of a reason. It's more fear-driven and avoidant in a way. Yeah. Because then those things might come back to get you later where you kind of realize, you know what, I've never really lived my life. I've always been living in fear. And is this really the marriage or the person that I want? And I've never actually forged a life. Well, then I think that could come and get you uh, later in this. What I mean by that is come to haunt you with regret and wondering.
1: Like not exploring all your options, not making choices based out of fear.
0: Yes. The fear of missing out ruins a lot of lives in the sense that people often are thinking there's something better. There's a greener pasture somewhere else. That there is a certain amount of knowing you learned about who you are and you learned about potential dating partners to feel that you can make an educated choice. And I think that's, that's the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm.
1: So do you think that maybe they should go on some dates with other people just a little bit, just to explore their options yes. in that way once they do?
0: I think so. Because I mean, if I were just to give a blanket recommendation, yeah. yes, because even if you come right back to that person,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you now know you really chose yeah. them. you you're, you're, you now have the, Feeling like, okay, I don't want anyone else. I want this
1: person. Yeah. And then and it makes it even more special. It does. Because you have more options. Yeah, that's right.
0: Awesome. That's right.
1: Okay. So my next question is I have some friends who feel like their parents' love is conditional on them serving a mission or just being exactly what their parents want them to be. Do you have any advice for them and anyone else who um, might be in their shoes?
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot, a lot of people, you know, whether religious or not, will have parents that have ideas about who their child should be. Mm-hmm. Because as you'll find out someday, if you're a parent, you feel like your child is on some level an extension of you. Now, I don't, I don't yeah. think that's particularly healthy, but that's kind of true. And that's partly why kids get a lot of good in their lives <laughs> from the yeah. parents. But it can be problematic if the parent is having a hard time letting the child define their own life mm-hmm. to really sort out who they are. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of religious parents who do this, but I remember listening to a program of a 12-year-old that was being interviewed on NPR and his dad was an was a resolute atheist. And the 12-year-old was like, I know my dad wants me to be an atheist, but actually, I kind of believe in God. (laughs) And he was saying apologetically. And I remember it it struck me as kind of funny because a lot of times, whatever ideology we claim, we want our kids to do it. If they don't feel that they're really accepted by their parents, they often have the idea that if they do what the parents want, then they will get the love. Mm -hmm. Then it will come for them. And it's probably true if they fit exactly into what the parents want. A lot of parents will then give a lot of positive validation to the child. But even if they get that, they still have the feeling that they're not really loved for who they are. They're Mm -hmm. loved because they're propping up the parent's view of themselves. Yeah. As good parents. So it often drives a lot of resentment. Even, even if they comply with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it's very hard not to do that, to either comply to get your parents' approval or defy it if you feel like you can't do it. And then you're kind of angry and you sort of go the other way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that just because my mother wants me to is, is also not especially healthy, but it's very hard yeah. to do one of those two things.
1: Do, what do you think is the best way to like develop a sense of self if you're in a household where you feel like it's really you have a ton of pressure on you?
0: It's really tricky, Isaac, because I think that it's so core to being human to want your parents to love you
1: mm-hmm.
0: and to try to do things to get them to love you, even if you rationally you know, I, I have a friend whose mother just would always judge her, no matter what she did. But mm-hmm. she still would try so hard to get her parent, mother, to love her. the The answer to your question is much easier to say than to do. It, it's recognizing that my my parents have an expectation, and but following it if I don't feel good about it. If I just follow it to get their love, I won't be at peace. Mm-hmm. I'll either still not get it because they aren't gonna get it or they will give their validation, but it doesn't feel like love. it just feels like validation yeah, and so I need to determine this is easier to say than to do what I think is best, even mm-hmm. if it's precisely what the parents also value right mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. I I have to not rebel or comply. I need to self-define it. And that's like developmentally what late adolescence and young adulthood, when things are going well, is pushing you to do is Mm -hmm. sort out who you are, sort out what you believe, sort out what you want your life to be about. And to take what your parents offered because it's important your parents do offer that framing, but then to sort out who are you in that framing? Who are you in those beliefs? Um, that's, you know, that's the, the developmental process. Definitely. And the more you feel clear that your parents love you, no matter what, the clearer that is because you're not trying to resolve that piece.
1: Yeah, so you don't have the pressure to either do it or not yeah. do it just because your parents are right.
0: There. But I think the antidote is to recognize that you don't. It isn't what it. It isn't really love if it's conditional. There's not really such thing as conditional love. It's either love, or it's conditional approval.
1: Like validation. Those are two
0: different things. Yes. Awesome. Yeah.
1: Okay. Next question is. If a couple is thinking about getting married, do you think it is important for them to discuss discuss sex because it will be such a it will be a big part of their new relationship? And if so, what should be discussed? Or do you at least think that they should learn about sex before getting married? What are your opinions on that?
0: Well, I think people should not be afraid of sexuality and afraid of sex or afraid of having these conversations because mm-hmm. if you're too afraid of it, it's going to make it difficult to really integrate it into a marriage and into your life. Um, so sometimes people are like, you know, you need to discuss lots of things when you're dating. I, I think you shouldn't be afraid to discuss things. I guess that's how I'd say it. Yeah. There's only so much you can figure out in the rational conversations. Right. But you're yeah. still, it's still valuable. And I think, um, I think, you know, especially if you value not having sex before marriage, that you want to you can tell a lot about whether or not there's a resonance with the person that you're with. Does it feel peaceful and easy to be with them physically? Does it feel, you know, that there is a a sense of attraction and desire? Right? There's a lot that you can track and feel just in any physical engagement. In fact, sometimes when I'm working with couples, I'll ask them to just reach over and touch each other right in the context of a classroom. And they can tell, you know, and then I have them think about the meaning of what just happened. And there's all kinds of messages about who they are as a couple in, in what they do. And that is true when you're dating or married, you know, there's, there's a lot of meanings that you can kind of feel that are Mm -hmm. happening in the way you're a couple.
1: Yeah. Okay, and then this question goes along with that one nicely. Mm -hmm. How important is physical attraction and chemistry in a relationship? And what if you really like someone's personality, but Mm -hmm. not so much the way they look or Mm -hmm. something like that?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I remember I was... (laughs) It's kind of harsh. No, no, no. I remember I was dating this... Not dating. I was good friends with this guy in high school that Mm -hmm. I really liked. And I remember him saying to me, I like making out with, you know, I'll make her name Heidi. I really like making out with Heidi. And I really mm-hmm. like, but I like talking to you. Meaning he didn't really like talking to Heidi. He just liked making out with her because she was super pretty. Yeah. <laughs> was, and you, I like talking to you. And, Ouch. <laughs> with the time being like, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> 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 getting clumsy through my way. But, um, well, I do think physical attraction is very important. Obviously, it's not okay. everything, um, mm-hmm. you know. He, this guy shouldn't have married Heidi. Well, he didn't, but like I mean, that is just the physical part is not going to make a marriage. But on the other hand, sometimes we devalue that attraction as as a key thing. Now. Some people have very rigid notions of attraction. You know, I remember some of the guys that I knew when I was in the dating years that they would, they would be like, I have to marry a 10, whatever that means, right? Like they'd have very, very, because they wanted somebody who made them look good, made them Mm -hmm. look like a man, made them feel like a man. And that's just a very, very immature version of attraction.
1: Yeah. This is completely being dependent on validation through someone else's looks.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So it's just a very immature version of it but mm-hmm. it is legitimate to really you know want to be close to someone it's, it's extreme it's like the core of romance i want mm-hmm. to be close to you now when yeah. it's healthy it's about i want to be with this 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 self this other person she attracts me she allures me you know he he i can't stop thinking about him right those are those are the kinds of visceral attraction that really is at the core of a romance so you don't mm-hmm. want to dismiss it but of course, it can't be everything. It just has to be a foundational piece of a good of a good marriage or good romance.
1: Definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see. Okay. <clears throat> I have some friends who are part of the LGBTQ community, and they struggle with thinking that there is something wrong with them. What advice would you give them?
0: Yeah. Well, it's again, it's easier to say than to really take in. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know just like a child that's in a conditional home it feels so true even if that you aren't enough right if you get mm-hmm. messages that you should be something else yeah and so if you've grown up hearing that there's something fundamentally wrong I mean the people that have the easiest time feeling good about themselves right they usually fit whatever the culture's ideals are Whatever that is, they have wealth, they have good looks, they have, you know, they're heterosexual. And Mm -hmm. so it's easy because the the culture validates it. And you can feel that in the way people interact with you. The people that have a harder time is when when there's an incongruity between who they are and what gets the most esteem. And Mm -hmm. so that can feel very real, even though what it really is, is an exposure of other people. Of their limits in being able to love. It's an exposure of an incongruity, but not of your value. You know, like mm-hmm. I have a child, an adult child on the autism spectrum, and there's an incongruity between what society expects of people and who he is. And that can be a painful incongruity because it can feel like there's something wrong with me
1: mm-hmm. when
0: that's just really not true because all of us as human beings have inherent value. God made us as we are and in all of that variety and uniqueness. Now that doesn't mean that some of our gifts can be challenging or can others can find difficult to accept or understand. And that can be a painful thing. But I think if you can believe, if you can push yourself, and again, this is easier to say than to fully take in, but, but to validate your feeling while recognizing that, I am worthy. God Mm -hmm. loves me. God created me in my, God don't make no junk. I remember seeing that (laughs) t-shirt, right? Like like we are all expressions of godliness, right? Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't mean that every choice we make is good, or there's no chance that we can, you know, correct ourselves on things. But the things that we don't choose, that Mm -hmm. we're born with, there's beauty in them, and learning how to see the beauty in ourselves and others is what spiritual spirituality is all about. It's mm-hmm. what learning how to love is all about, and so it's having the courage to hold on to your dignity, even if others do not.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. In the book, um, come as you are. It, it always says everyone is normal. And everyone's beautiful and it's all like, yeah. 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 So just like that, I think. That's
0: right. Especially those things that we can't change that just come with us. There's yeah. an inherent beauty in it. And we can self-correct around our choices, but mm-hmm. they must be the things we choose.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, Next question. What advice would you give teenagers who feel shame about unwanted masturbation and pornography use? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, okay. you are asking tough questions, I think. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm just teasing you because <laughs> I'm like trying to be succinct, but there's just so much to say that it's a little hard to be succinct. Well, so there's maybe two pieces in it, and it kind of goes to some of the themes we've been talking about. A lot of times people are – they feel ashamed and, and struggle in part because – They've learned a kind of false idea about sexuality. So they've learned that, you know, having sexual feelings, having sexual pleasure, is just problematic kind of out of the gate. that if you're really a good person, or you're really somebody who wants to, you know, loves God or you know trying to live a good life, that you're, that your sexuality, makes you less, makes you on some level indulgent and shouldn't even be there, right? And so a lot of times when people have learned that idea, well, they the, the thing is they either repress it or they actually get more compulsive about it because they're trying so hard to push it away. And sometimes I, I give the example of people with food, if they've been shamed about food a lot, that they'll either be anorexic, you know, or they'll be compulsive in their eating like bulimic or a compulsive overeater because there's a lot of anxiety connected to that sensual aspect of being just like sexuality can be. And so that makes something problematic because you're trying to work out your relationship with it, but you're never at peace. Um, at the same time, doing anything compulsively, whether it's masturbating or looking at porn or, or doing things that you really don't believe are good for you right are never going to make you be at peace with yourself like it is it does matter so so when i teach online courses and things like that i talk a lot about something i call sexual integrity and it has sort of a double focus but what i think of it is that we have to accept the gift of our sexuality we have to be able to be to receive the gift of being embodied and what i mean by that is like that you get to feel things that you're inherently sexual and even if even if it's a little bit hard to accept it to truly like embrace the beauty of your body and the gift of of being able to feel and to have pleasure in it mm-hmm. because if you can just accept it you're not trying to run from it or you know you're not you don't have shame infecting your choices And then in accepting this gift is learning how to choose in ways that allow you to embrace the good in your sensuality and embrace the good in sexuality without, um, you know, without creating any negative effects in your life or in the lives of others. So it's integrity also by living up to your better self in how you relate to your sensual and sexual self Mm -hmm. so and i think those two go together a lot it's like it's kind of love it's it's loving to say my sexuality and being capable of pleasure is good and i want to do good with my sexuality and those two go together but if if there's a monkey wrench in it which is like well no it's not good and you have to manage it or you're bad right it it gets it it gets it takes the it keeps the locus of control outside of you. I shouldn't even have these feelings. I should, you know, and they make me bad. And rather than, no, this is good. And what am I going to, how am I going to choose in a way that creates good in my life or in my relationships?
1: Mm -hmm. So really like taking the shame away from it and then just realizing that it's, your sexuality is a part of who you are. (laughs) And then that can give you like, power or just better understanding of it. Yeah. And so you can make better decisions. You're in
0: the driver's seat at that point, right? It's like, you know, you can be like, yeah, I love, I love sugar. I love those things. Wonderful. It's a great part Mm -hmm. of being alive. And I want to have, I want to be healthy and I want to live in a way that I respect. So how am I going to relate to those pleasures in a way that accrue to good things in my life? Awesome. Yeah. Shame will throw that whole formula off. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then- I think a lot of people, and myself included, I think that I used to view my habits as a lot more compulsive than they actually were. Do you have any advice for people to maybe really understand whether it's compulsive or not?
0: Well, sometimes I think well-intentioned people will frame pornography or, uh, you know, they'll put it in a frame of addiction, which I think they're trying to help because I think they're trying to say, okay, you have a problem and
1: cause addiction is bad. Yeah. is so, a
0: bad thing. And you yeah. know, yeah, but the problem with that, I have found for some people anyway, mm-hmm. is that unwittingly, it makes it seem like they have a disease. It makes it feel like that they can't control it, that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. I had a client who's teenager, started looking at pornography when he was like 14 then the parents found out then they brought him to a program and the, and he got super depressed after going to the program because he started feeling like i'm fundamentally broken like i'm mm-hmm. i'm a terrible human and you know adolescence is already
1: hard enough as hard it is enough, right? yeah.
0: <laughs> so this was making things a lot worse and they were quite worried about it because he mm-hmm. was really kind of uh, struggling with his sense of self so not only is it hard on one, it can be hard on one sense of self. But again, mm-hmm. it can really wreak havoc on this locus of control. Locus of control is something that's really important as an antidepressant. When people feel like they are being buffeted about by forces outside of them, they're likely to get depressed. If they feel like life may be hard, but I get to choose my life and my cho- and what and who I'm going to be, they're not mm-hmm. depressed. So you want the locus of control to always be inside the person. And so when I work with people who have a problematic relationship to their sexuality, to sexual choices, to pornography, I'm often talking to them to help them think about what, what am I trying to solve in doing this? Right. What am I trying to address? Because more self-awareness allows them to think about, is that actually solving it? Right. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes in addiction programs, they'll say like, um, you know, something like this, this is not working for me, you know, drinking all the time, but I'm very, very good at it. <laughs> like I'm very good at turning to yes. this solution, right? So helping yeah. people to recognize this isn't getting me what I want, but also that I get to, de- I get to choose the life I want. And what do I want my relationship to pornography to be? What do I want mm-hmm. my relationship to sexuality to be? Or alcohol or anything else, depending what life do I want to live? Because if you can help people get into a deeper self-awareness. So they're not just being run around by their feelings and help them realize they get to decide if they're going to just rush away from their feelings or stay in their feelings long enough to sort out what they want and choose in a direction that makes them feel better about themselves. They Mm -hmm. get to decide that. So my goal is always helping people to see themselves as the agents in their lives. Doesn't mean you get to control everything, you know, you, Mm -hmm. obviously, we have a lot of yeah. times we have to choose within context. We wish we didn't have to choose within, but we still get to be choosers.
1: Yeah. You can choose your attitude and your yes. work ethic. And yes. Yeah. And whether or not That's you do great. hard
0: things and whether or not you yeah. escape from things or go towards them. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Next question is um, – if I wanted to do what you do, yeah. well, like college-wise, what would you study or major in or what sure. books would you recommend? And you
0: mean what I do like as in being a therapist who works with people around sexuality and intimacy issues? Is that what you mean? You yeah. just want to make sure yeah. I the scope of what you mean. So,
1: yes. uh,
0: yeah. So, well, I, I'll i tell you what I did and then I can tell you kind of what other people have done that, that, that are similar pathways. Uh, so I right. studied psychology and women's mm-hmm. studies as an undergrad. And then I went on and got a master's and a PhD in counseling psychology. Um, I chose counseling psychology because I knew that I wanted to work with normative issues, and what I mean by normative is not work with psychopathology, which is a which is a direction. So clinical psychology is more about working with disorders such as like schizophrenia, you know, uh, mm-hmm. mental health disorders. I guess is how I say. yeah. And um, But I wanted to work more with developmental issues, helping people to, around self-definition, how to live their lives the best that they can. And then when I was in my PhD program, I knew I wanted to specialize in marriage. So I did as much as I could in terms of my internships and training and writing around marriage and family systems and things like that. And then I ended up writing my dissertation on sexuality and then postgraduate work. I just did a lot of, you know, training with specialists in both marriage and sexuality.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: um, so that's the path the, that I took was both this sort of developmental frame, marriage and sexuality and marriage and, and family systems, a school of thought that's about uh-huh. it's called systems theory. Murray Bowen was the one who developed this best, but, it's really thinking about dynamics in relationships dynamics in family relationships. And, um, and then Dr. Schnarch's work was taking many of these same theories and thinking about how they applied to intimacy, the capacity Mm -hmm. for intimacy in a marriage and so on. So, um, So that's, that's the work I do. I, as you probably know, I care very much about working with Latter-day Saints um, and working with people to kind of claim the best in our faith and the highest principles that we ascribe to, to facilitate our ability to create intimate marriages, to become more loving people and so on. So I also draw a lot on our um, faith and um, to help people in these ways to claim the best in themselves really.
1: Awesome. Maybe one day I'll be your apprentice. <laughs>
0: yeah. <that's laughs> I can study under you. One of these days I'll probably do some training. I just haven't I haven't felt the spark for that yet, but maybe that's coming. We'll see. Yeah.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have. Yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And also thank you because like my whole family has learned so much from your work yeah. and it is greatly significantly improved all of our lives so so thanks so much
0: that's great thank you isaac thanks for having me thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed today's episode we ask that you please rate review and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from dr jennifer's work